Good morning. I got to tell you, uh, as once been said before, we can do this the easy way, or we can do this the hard way. Now, the easy way to approach James chapter 4, verses 11 in would be for me to say, hey, did you hear the bit about you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow? Welcome to 2020. Thank you. Amen. We sit down, we move on. That would be the easy way. I've chosen a more challenging way for us this morning. I want to follow in the wisdom of some of the wise men who have come before me because James has some stuff that we really need to hear. Uh, One of the wise men before me is Langdon Stewart, who preached to us last week from the earlier part of James 4. And he challenged us to think about where our desires come from. When we make decisions, when we desire different things, what's driving that? Is it me or is it God? And as I thought about that sort of language and as I reflected on James chapter 4 verse 10 that says, Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. I started to think about another wise man who came, well, some years before Langdon. His name is Copernicus. Copernicus, of course, was the mathematician who brought about the Copernican revolution. He proposed heliocentricism. That is, that the world where we live is not at the center of our galaxy instead. He said, no, 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 you're not at the center, planet Earth. You actually go around and around a sun, a helios, that is in the middle. Why Copernicus? Well, because this kind of language causes me to think, who's at the center of our world? Before Copernicus came the brother of the Lord Jesus, a guy called James who writes to us today, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And I believe that he encourages us, particularly in this chapter, to think about what's at the center of your world. What's at the center of your desires, as Langdon caused us to look at? What's at the, the, center, at the center of what you do? Now, I've got to tell you, the challenging way is probably a more appropriate way for me to lead us through this passage and the easy way because there is some language that should cause us to realize we're in for a bit of a workout in God's word today. James uses phrases like, now listen. I know, I hear the song in my head too, move on. It's now listen, he says this a few times. A few times he says, look. He challenges with phrases like, who are you? What is your life? When someone writes you a letter like that, you know they've got some stuff that they want you to comprehend, understand, and respond to. Well, that's James today. I think the challenge from James, particularly in chapter 4, is this. You've moved yourself, you and I, you've moved yourself to the center of the universe. You think the world goes around you. Today is the day under God for a Copernican revolution, where no longer will you place yourself at the center, but instead you'll place God at the center. James challenges his first hearers and his hearers today to understand you've moved yourself to the center, and he's going to illustrate how we try and how we act like we are at the center in three ways in our reading today. The first way James shows us that we try to move ourselves to the center is he says this, you guys use pushy language. Your language is pushy. What do I mean by that? Well, have a look at verses 11 to 12 with me, and they'll be on the screen for you to help out. It says, Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or a sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. 
when you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbour? A couple of things that James does. He uses this language of slander and this language of judgment. In the original language here, he uses two words that sound like this, katalaleo and katakrino. Now, it's clever. Just like today, we write in certain ways to be persuasive, so too in the ancient world. Do you hear that these words, even though you might not speak ancient Greek, you hear they sound similar, katalaleo and katakrino. There's a bit of an alliteration going on. It's meant to prick up our ears to hear what he has to say. Most importantly, these words, katalaleo, translated slander, and katakrino, translated judgments, begin with the preposition kata. And this word in these two compound words means against. You have a way of speaking about one another that is against language. It applies force and seeks to shift people and move them. It's pushy. Now, I raise this because sometimes when we hear the word slander, you might just think, well, it's not a big deal for me. I don't go around saying, oh, such and such, you should see the dress they wore the other day look terrible. Or oh, such and such, they wouldn't know a good football game. It's more than just that kind of language. It's pushy language. It's a language that pushes against and seeks to move others. Katakrino is more than just judgment, more than just making decisions. It's judgment that condemns. What would he know? He's an idiot, you might say. It's a kind of language that pushes someone, their agenda, you might say, dehumanizes and pushes them out of the way. James brings this to our attention right at the beginning here because he wants us to understand that often as we try to put ourselves at the center of the universe, what gets in the way of being at the center? these pesky other people around us with their own views, their own opinions, their own agendas. So what do we do? We use pushy language. Get out of my way. The center is mine. Hey, you, move. You don't matter. The center is mine. Hey, are all of you confused? The world's about me, not about you. So get out of the way. We speak in a way to advance our cause. James says, you move your brothers and sisters out of the way with your language. And guess what? As you move them out of the way, you forget that they belong to God. You forget that God has given his law, which we should understand well as his wisdom. So you push his people out the way. You push his wisdom out the way. And when you sit in judgment over God's wisdom, guess what? You just moved God out of the center of the universe and placed yourself there instead. Verse 12, James is right to accuse all of his readers. Who are you to do this? Why do you think you belong at the middle? The center is for the creator. The center belongs to God. What's alarming about this, this strong warning, this strong accusation, is that James's tense when he says do not is not the kind of tense where he's saying, look, avoid that ever happening. The tense is, this is happening and it needs to stop. The way he writes, the tense he uses in his original language is, this is going on in the church and it's got to stop. 
If I'm honest with you, friends, James observed that in the church he wrote to firsthand. And whilst I've been privileged to be a part of some magnificent, godly, fantastic churches, I've never been, of a, church, been a part of a church where this was not an issue in the community, where I and others haven't used pushy language to advance our cause, to move ourselves to the centre. Let me give you some examples of how this kind of manifests in our world today. Have you ever sort of been wanting to advance your cause a little bit? Oh, everyone's been saying this. Yeah, that happens in churches as well. The phrase is, people are saying. I've heard that phrase in every church I've ever been a part of. When we use phrases like, people are saying, we're using pushy language. Although sometimes we're using it in a pulley kind of way. Let me explain. As I move myself to the center of the universe and desire that everyone come with me, well, as someone at the center of the universe, I look to will extend my gravitational pull to make myself bigger. And so I start to project my opinions onto others. Oh, people are saying, you should heed me because I represent the people. Perhaps it's projection, perhaps it's promotion of myself to a self-appointed leader of the people. And I say, people are saying, and I look for the person I'm speaking to, to cower in my presence. I certainly go along with me because feel my enormous gravity. It's not just me. People are saying they're all drawn to my view. And friends, might I say to you carefully but importantly, as a pastor and a leader in a church, I've never been a part of a church where that phrase wasn't used to influence leadership. And I want to say to you carefully but importantly, no godly, mature leader of a Christian church sets their course by what people are saying or the report people are saying. A mature leader, in fact, any mature disciple, operates for an audience of one, the one who is at the center, and that is God. They are not politicians. They are disciples. And at the center of the universe for the disciple of Jesus is God. And so often when people say to me, and I just use the phrase, people are saying, I say, look, don't feel the burden to speak for everyone. That's a whole lot of load on you. You just tell me what you're saying. You know, there are other places where we use kind of pushy language to uh, try and advance our cause or stop another person's cause. One of the popular ones is to use the phrase, I'm offended. Now let's be careful because this phrase is sort of pushed at a particular demographic and age in our world today, but I don't think that's actually true. I think a lot of us have kind of adopted this as our social liturgy in a way to respond to things we don't like. And it reveals when you say things like, I'm offended, or what I will say is even less brave, that's offensive as a response to something you don't like. It reveals what's at the centre. Let me try and illustrate it this way. Over generations, I mean hundreds of generations in different worldviews and things like that, people have tried to uh, respond to things they didn't like. You know, think of, uh, I don't know, maybe like the ancient pagans. Someone behaves in a certain way, has a practice or, or uh, asserts something and they don't like it. What might they say? The gods are offended by this. Because at the center of the universe for the ancient pagan is a pantheon of gods and they decide what is right. They decide what is good. They decide where we should go. They become the compass of the world. And so they say, 
The gods are offended for they are at the centre. Maybe if you want a more monotheistic view, that is believing in one God, you could consider in the Bible in uh, Jude, it's actually said that, that the archangel Michael, who believes in one God, the God of heaven, was contending with the devil over the body of Moses. I know it's weird, but here's what he says. The Lord rebuke you. Michael, talking to the devil, didn't want to fall into slander or put himself at the center. He said, the Lord rebuke you. For the archangel Michael, the Lord is at the center and he will judge you, Satan. Perhaps someone with a modernist mindset might say something like when receiving uh, information they don't agree with, that's not true. Because for them, certain truth claims are at the center. Maybe in the schoolyard or in other places, if someone says something you don't agree with, you might say, prove it. That's kind of a scientific mindset, isn't it? You've asserted something, now show the evidence that confirms it. Let, let, let's see your theory work out. Prove it. Not a bad thing to have toward the center, but not at the center. The postmodern mindset adopted the liturgy of, well, that might be true for you suggesting that there was no central truth and that you can have your own universe there and I'll have my own universe here and we'll all be at the center of our own little universes. And within that vacuum, I'm going to suggest this morning that we thought, what could we put at the center of the universe? We adopted the phrase, I'm offended. Me and my emotional response to what you have said will be the guiding and governing principle over what is true and what's acceptable. Such is my enormous gravity. Now I'm being a little bit cheeky. Let me say that our feelings matter. And our feelings are very much a part of our conversations with one, with one another. And they should not be neglected or overlooked. I want to say that hurts are real. And hurts should not be ignored. I want to say that as we share an opinion, when you're a jerk about it, you're a jerk about it. And there's no excusing that. And let me say that our feelings and the times where we take offense are powerful emotions. When we make them the central and governing factor of our world and how we receive behaviors and truths, we've used pushy language and we've promoted our feelings and our response for which only we can be responsible to the very center of the universe. Offended is an invalid response to an argument. If you're offended, acknowledge it. Indeed, ask for help. Decide what you plan to do about your offended feelings. But do not commit the idolatrous sin of moving your offense to being the moral compass of the world. This is unloving. This is selfish. This causes humans to miss out on wisdom. And the churches that follow Seuss, the churches that avoid offense to become liberal interpreters of scripture and blind guides to the world. James has a stern warning for us. You don't belong at the center. God does. His second example is, think about the way you live your lives. Have a look at verses 13 to 17. He says, now listen, 
You who say today or tomorrow, we'll go to this city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist. A mist that appears for a while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. You live like you're in charge. Now, let me say for everyone there who's like, oh, but my plans. I love plans too. Once upon a time, my wife, who's watching right now, mocked me. She mocked me on social media by posting a picture of me with a carefully articulated spreadsheet that would explain just how our fun on our holiday was going to be ordered and how I planned the next year of engaging in my hobby because I like plans. Rules help control the fun. It's great. But look, the trouble is how we approach our plans. The oldest sin that humanity knows is the quest for autonomy. That is to do it all by myself. From the very beginning, God made humans. And he blessed them. And he asked one thing of them. He said, look, there's a tree. It's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Stay away from that tree. And the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. And they ate of it. Why would they eat of it? And why is it a problem? For a long time, I couldn't understand why was it a problem. Why is God so upset that people would want to get smarter? That people would eat from the knowledge of the tree of goodness? And then they could stop pestering him. They could eat. They could make their own decisions, decide what is good, act well, and move on. God can take the day off. Well, that's exactly the problem. It's about wanting God to take the day off so that we can move forward by ourselves. A very important verse that we will visit in a few weeks' time when we go through Habakkuk is this. The righteous will live by faith. God says the right way for a human to live is in dependence upon him. Faith isn't just about an insurance policy for the day you die. Faith can well be understood through the journey of the people of Israel who moved from slavery in Egypt to the promised land. God didn't start by saying, look, I'm going to rescue you. Here's the map and I'll meet you there. No, instead, each day you're going to follow me. I'll appear as a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire. You follow me. Just trust. Where I go, you go. I go left, you go left. I go right, you go right. I dodge a snake, you dodge a snake. You just follow me. Trust me to lead you in the right way and have faith that I'll provide for your needs along the way. The greatest and oldest sin of humanity is the quest for autonomy, to do it by ourselves. And James points this out here. He says, look, you live like you're in charge. You live like you're at the center of the universe. You live like you created the universe, like you control the universe and you'll outlive the universe. But that's not you. He says you live like this because you confuse what order of creation you are and what order of creator that God is. You're massively confused about how the two of you fit together. He says, see, you're like a mist. You know, at best, you're like what comes out of a squirt bottle. Gone. Yeah, at best, you're maybe like the morning mist, which might hang around for a little while until the sun rises and whoosh, it's gone doesn't even see out the whole day. 
so misty ones, you don't understand you're like mist and God's like the ocean. And you're trying to tell him about the properties of being liquid. Mist is trying to explain to the ocean what it is to be wet. Only my illustration falls flat because whilst we are like mist, God's not like the ocean because even the ocean is finite. And God is infinite and eternal. So much is the difference between God and humanity. He says, but you want a plan like you know all things. And this comes up from time to time when we contemplate ourselves and contemplate God, doesn't it? Who's at the center? And so we wrestle with issues like the sovereignty of God. That means that God controls everything to the very hairs on your head. The moment of your death, every day, we wrestle with God's sovereignty and silly concepts of human free will, which does not exist. There is no such thing as free will. There is creaturely will. If I was had free will, I'd say, I'm going to become a unicorn right now and gallop off into a COVID-free world. But I don't have that kind of freedom. But as a creature, I can make decisions. But God is sovereign over everything. We wrestle with concepts like God's omniscience. This is the idea that God knows everything and the science of humans. Now, that's not to say that science is a bad thing. Science is a great thing, but science, properly understood, is the progress of humans discovering, proving, and learning. It progresses and progresses. Guess what? God's already there. The all-knowing might know a few more things than the regularly discovering but we miss the difference between the two of us. There's the benevolence of God. He is always good and can't get better. But we have our off days. But somehow think that my will might be more pure and better than the evil God. We confuse the glory of God with the pride of humans. In this very passage, we confuse God's perfect judgment without pushy speech. And right here we confuse the eternal plan of God with the misty motives of men. Verse 15 and 17 go on to say, in my words, you don't check in with God whether he's on board with your plans and worse still, you don't check in with God to find out what his plans are for your life. Somehow we live life like we create a plan and then say, God, you should get on board with this. James says, shouldn't we rather say, God, what are your plans that I might get on board with them? Now, I'm in no space to offer anyone any kind of financial advice, but I am in a space to offer you some theological advice. Sometimes... Think about the great Aussie dream. The great Aussie dream is to own a home. And that's not a bad thing. I'm not a homeowner, but I'm sure glad someone is because I rent their home and I'm very grateful for it. But when we make decisions about buying homes and things like that, what is the liturgy? What is the, what is the, the, the word, the language we use to decide? Rent money is dead money. That's probably sound financially, but I suspect there might be something more important to put at the centre, like, Lord... Would you have it that I purchase a home? Lord, is this where you want me to live? Lord, do you want me to enter into this long-term commitment? Lord, what would you have for my life? Lord, where are you leading? It's not financial advice. I'm in no place to do that. 
but I want to challenge our normal thought of what goes at the center. Do we ask God, what would you have for me? And if we engage with God in this way, if we place God at the center, not only do we avoid the sin that we commit, that is the things that we shouldn't do, we start to learn what God would have us do and we avoid the sin of omission, that is leaving out the things that we should do under God. James challenges us in all our planning. Don't live like you're in charge. Don't live like you're at the center. Put God at the center and find out what he wants to do. Here's my third thing that I see in James. James explains to us in my words, fear has become your gravity. Let me explain. Gravity shapes movement. When I jump, I come back down because of gravity. The earth moves around the sun the way it does because of gravity. James is going to explain to us here that, you know what, when you place your judgment and your desire at the center of your universe rather than God, you get pulled around by fear. It becomes your gravity. When you take God's knowledge and God's plan out of the center of your universe and put your plans and your knowledge at the center, you're going to get pulled around by fear. And when you're at the center of your entire universe... I don't know if you know this, I suspect we all do. It creates a lot of pressure. Life gets hard. Life gets scary. Because fear enslaves. So James says in chapter 5 verse 1, Wail. Wail. Be sad. He says, wail because the misery that is coming on you. Why would he say that? He says it because when you're at the center and the things you've acquired are at the center, what you've got is all you've got. And when what you've got is all you've got, you work ridiculously hard to acquire it. And as he goes on in verse 3, you work ridiculously hard to keep it. You begin to hoard it. Because your fearfulness of being without causes you to work so hard to acquire what is passing. Your fearfulness not to fall down causes you to hold on to us. And perhaps most alarming, verse 4, he says, Look! With an exclamation mark. Your fear that that everything you've got is all you've got has not only caused you to acquire what doesn't last, to hoard it because you're so scared of losing it, it's caused you to become unjust and to steal from those you owe. You haven't paid their wages. He describes it as you've murdered the innocent one. Why would anyone do this? Because they're so fearful. When you are at the center of your universe, there's a whole lot of pressure. There's a whole lot of fear. Fear becomes your gravity. It pulls you where you may not want to have gone. It pulls you in a direction that is not the same direction that God would have you go. When you are at the center, all you've got is all you've got. And I find that scary. And I think you do too. There's been some heavy challenge, you might call accusation, from what I've spoken from James today. And at this point, 
there's two voices, two spiritual voices that may engage with you. One is the voice of the devil, the Satan. Now, he loves what I've preached. He loves me showing us from James where things are wrong. You know why? Because he wants you to hear it and feel condemned and to run from God. That's the voice of the devil. I want you to hear a different spiritual voice. This is the voice of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit also delights in what we've said. He wrote it. The Holy Spirit wants us to hear that things aren't quite right and that we've pushed ourselves to the center. But he doesn't want us to be condemned. He wants us to be convicted. He wants us to see that this is an error and now not to run from God, but to run toward God who is merciful. And so let's retrack. Let's ask ourselves, who should be at the center? Who do I want at the center? If I was to move out from the center and God was at the center of my world, then I delight in his judgment at the center because it is right. He gets it right all the time. And I know that even under his judgment, I would be found wanting. His judgment comes with mercy. How do I know? Because the Bible tells me that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die the death that I deserve. So that though I'm found guilty under his judgment, Jesus pays my debts, my penalty is gone, and I am considered not guilty. What do I want at the center? My misty plan for a temporary life? Working things the best they can be to live my best life now? Or the eternal plan of God that will exceed my earthly days and gives me certainty for eternity? What do I want to be my gravity? The thing that pulls me around? Do I want the gravity of fear? Or the wonderful, certain promise of faith. I want to encourage you to come with me in what we might call a Copernican revolution today. And to declare to God, I can trust you to be at the center because you are always good. I can trust you to be at the center because you're always right. I can trust you to be at the center because you are always merciful. I ask you now to be at the center of my life because you will always save. You are always good. You are always God. And I am not. This is the language of James chapter 4, verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Let me let us in prayer before we praise this great God in song. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we say sorry to you now for the times that we have pushed others out of the way, where we have pushed you out of the way, where we have acted like we made ourselves and that we own the world, like our plans don't include you. We say sorry for that. Father, we thank you that if we invite you, you are very willing to come to the center of our lives. You demonstrated this by sending your son to come and live in the center of this world, to be at the center of sin, to be at the center of punishment, and now to be at the center of new life by his resurrection. And so we ask, Father, that in humility, 
we come before you, leaving the center, asking you to be in the center, and we commit our lives to you, asking that you will be our God, our Lord, our Master, and our Savior. And Father, in this we pray now that we would be released from the gravity and the burden of fear and released to the certainty, the hope, and the joy of the promise of salvation that there is in the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.